This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. It's been five years since Sandra Bland died in a Texas jail after spending three days there. She was only 28. She wasn't shot in bed like Breonna Taylor in Louisville. She wasn't shot in the back like Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. And she wasn't killed by a cop's knee on her neck like George Floyd in Minneapolis. What happened to Sandra Bland? Debbie Nathan found some answers. Her powerful and moving report was the cover story in The Nation magazine in 2016. Debbie Nathan reports on immigration, race, and sexual politics. She's covered Texas for many years, including her award-winning work for This American Life. We spoke about Sandra Bland in 2016. I started with the two dozen videos Sandra Bland had posted on her Facebook page. She called them Sandy Speaks. I asked Debbie Nathan to tell us about Sandy Speaks. Well, Sandy was speaking through her smartphone videos. Uh, She used to get into her car when she went out for lunch from her work, and she would talk about things that she was thinking about. And during the months when she was doing these videos, she was mostly thinking about the same issues that Black Lives Matter is thinking about. But I want to say also that she had more than videos. Um, Sometimes more than once a day she would post, you know, the way people do on Facebook. She put these videos on Facebook. But she also had postings where she linked to articles and she just kind of talked the way people do. And those are also equally interesting. Very few people have read them. In those uh, postings, she often really implied things about her life that even went beyond sometimes what she had on the videos. And there was that greeting that she opened her posts with. She did. She would say, Good morning, my beautiful kings and queens, or good afternoon, my beautiful kings and queens. And she said that about all of us. We were all her kings and queens, and I'm white. She was a very ecumenical person. So Sandra Bland, we're calling her Sandy, is that right? That's what she called herself. That's what everyone who knew her called her. So I guess I am doing it myself. Okay, I'll join you. Sandy went to a mostly white high school, I learned from your piece in The Nation, in suburban Chicago. Sounds like she was great in high school. She was. She was a very good student. She was an honor student. Um, She joined just about every club that there was. Uh, She was much beloved um, by students and by her teachers, even some of the teachers who were not so used to maybe a style of, you know, she was a very opinionated, feisty young woman, and there were very few blacks at the school. So I think that she navigated being black at a practically all-white school in a very brilliant way. And your report, she was the only black cheerleader, and she played trombone in the band. And for college, she got a music scholarship to Prairie View A&M University, which I understand is near Houston, a historically black school. Sounds like she was great in college. She was. She majored in animal science, which might sound a little unusual because she was a big city girl. But Prairie View is an A&M in the same way that the big, there's a big agricultural and mechanical college in Texas that everyone knows about, A&M. Prairie View was the black A&M. Prairie View was founded when black people were not allowed to go to white colleges. It's a post-Civil War black college. So, you know, there's like this big agricultural component there. And um, she got interested in animal science. And she told many people that she wanted to be an FDA inspector. 
Then she graduated in 2009 and, and started looking for a job. 2009, that was right after the economic collapse of fall 2008. What was it like for a black 22-year-old looking for a job in 2009? It was terrible. It was just, you know, black young black graduates, BAs, were many times more likely to be unemployed than white graduates. Black women had it even worse. They had it worse than black men. A a white high school female graduate during the last few years has had a better chance of getting a job than a young black woman with a BA degree. And it hasn't really gotten any better for young black women. And then Sandy Bland started getting stopped for traffic violations. What was her experience? There's no income tax in Texas, and so a lot of municipalities and the state itself raise money by putting all kinds of um, charges onto traffic tickets. And, I mean, they're just every charge you can imagine. You know, there's charges for treating sick people. There are charges for um, having increased surveillance at the border. There are charges, all kinds of things. Um, So that creates this great incentive to stop people and to ticket them. And she was constantly being ticketed. This is a huge issue in Texas, and black people are stopped and ticketed more often than white people. All the statistics show that. So she was stopped quite a bit, but actually I interviewed friends of hers who had the same experience. It's a very common experience in Texas. And how much money did she end up owing on her traffic tickets? Well, you know, funny that you should ask that because I think everybody wants to focus on Texas. She owed several hundred dollars in Texas, but later, I just have to say this, she went back to Illinois, and it was even worse in Illinois because Illinois does the same thing. In fact, lots of municipalities collect money from traffic tickets to put in their general fund. So not only did she have hundreds of dollars in Texas in traffic tickets, but when she went to Illinois, she had thousands of dollars. Again, the same thing in Illinois. All of the Department of Transportation statistics show that black people, particularly in the county, the suburban county where she was, are many times more likely to be ticketed than white people. I learned from your piece that in Texas, or at least in in Houston, if you can't pay your traffic tickets, you go to jail. And Sandy Bland went to jail for how long? Well, she was in jail sitting down, I think they call it sitting down her traffic tickets or sitting out her traffic tickets for about three days because she was in a county where she got $100 a day to do that. There are other counties where you only get $50 a day. And that, again, that's like sort of the the work of poor people is to be in jail paying their traffic tickets sitting there. This was the Harris County Jail in Texas, county jails are usually horrible places. What's what's the Harris County Jail like? Yeah, that's Houston. Um, it's the big jail in Houston, and it's got, I don't know, 9,000 people in it on any given day. And it's really, really a bad place. It's been investigated in the last five years or so, which would have been the time she was there by the DOJ. And they found that, you know, it's a violent place. Um, it's a neglectful place. It's a filthy place. It's like physically filthy So, you know, it must have been a very, very unpleasant experience for this middle-class girl, particularly, to be sitting in that jail. Some of the traffic stops also led to marijuana charges. That's right. Um, Also in Texas, and particularly in Harris County, which is Houston, uh, black people, even though they have pretty much the same rate of smoking weed as everybody else in the United States, are far more prone to be stopped And she was stopped on traffic tickets. And then there was one time when, 
after her car was impounded. Actually, um, it was a DUI. She was coming back from a party. She had a little too much to drink. They impounded her car. And while they were impounding it, they saw a little baggie with just a tiny, tiny bit of marijuana in it. Um, in most states, you're not going to have too much happen to you. But Texas is very harsh. And um, she was slapped with a misdemeanor charge, and she spent 30 days locked up. So when she got out of jail in Texas, she went back to Illinois. And what happened there? She had the same problem. She could not get a good job. She was working all the time, but she was just working temporary, and she was working at places like McDonald's. She was having the same problems with being stopped and ticketed. And um, she did have a um, godmother who was very supportive of her and who apparently she had an easy time speaking with, um, more than she did maybe with her family. And her godmother uh, unfortunately got sick with cancer and she died. And I think that that was probably Sandy's real support. And her, her godmother died and clearly that was traumatic for her. And somewhere in there, Sandy also had a miscarriage, is that right? She, according to some records that have emerged, she reported to a doctor that she'd had what's called an ectopic pregnancy. It's not a miscarriage. It's much more traumatic physically than a miscarriage. She had a pregnancy, she reported, that lands instead of in your uterus in your fallopian tubes, and it can't go anywhere there except to kill you if the embryo is not removed surgically. It's a very dangerous condition. So that was another traumatic event for her. And she told people around this time that she was depressed. What do we know about that? She had a friend who I spoke with who told me that she did mention this to him. And he was a little bit taken aback because he told me that this is not really talked about in African-American culture and it's not really dealt with, you know, in the way of saying, oh, you should go get therapy. If you read her her Facebook, and if you watch those videos, she was speaking about depression. She was speaking about her depression. She had a couple videos where she told her listeners that she was depressed, and she said, this is a very big problem in black culture. We don't talk about this, and we really need to. It's a very serious problem. She um, linked in her Facebook postings to articles that were emerging from what, they, from what are called womanist psychotherapists, um, black feminists who are dealing with women's issues in therapy and mental health, you know, really discussing this problem, the fact that more black people than white people are suffering from depression and women have it worse and women are, you know, their, their um, level of treatment is just they're not getting treatment, partly because they can't afford it, health insurance is still not adequate, and partly because the culture um, really mitigates against it, as I've said, against um, defining it this way and getting treatment. And she posted about that more than once. So it's very sad that you don't see a response to these videos or to these posts on her Facebook page. You don't see people saying, oh, what can I do to help? Let me refer you to my therapist. You know, there's nothing like that. It's like everyone is pretty interested in responding to her posts about police violence, you know, against black people. But when it comes to her discussing her own problems, there's a kind of silence. It's as though she's not speaking. It's almost like people aren't hearing. She's trying to speak, but people are not hearing She's served time in jail, she's depressed, she's lost her godmother, and she applies for a job, 
back at Prairie View in Houston, her old school. What happens then? She applied for a job and she got a call or a communication from Prairie View and they said, we'd like to interview you tomorrow. She just got in her car, put some clothes in the back seat, and she left. She didn't know whether she'd have a job or not, but she went to the interview. She had actually applied for three jobs. And um, one of those jobs was really up her alley. It was a professional job for somebody with a BA, and it had to do with agriculture. One of the jobs was just a low-paying clerical job that was only going to last for a few weeks. So she interviewed for these various jobs, and she was hired for the clerical job. It, it was a very, you know, a very tenuous situation. It was only going to last, like I said, you know, for less than a month and it wasn't going to pay very much. But I think I can, you know, I think it's easy to remember that feeling when you're that age. Like I've got to get out of here. I've got to go someplace that I love. I've got to try to make a new life for myself. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but like somehow I'll just try to make it work. She went down and had, you know, she got the interview. She got tentatively hired, but Prairie View is actually a very strict place and a conservative place when it comes to the box. Sandy was a victim of the box. She had numerous misdemeanors, and it's clear from her Facebook that that it hounded her when she applied for jobs, that she had to tell her uh, when she applied that she had a uh, record. And she got a letter with her hire letter. It was a tentative hire letter saying, now we have to check your background, to do a background check. And if we find that you have a current criminal record, we can rescind this offer. And so that's the situation that she was in when she was brutalized by Brian Incendia, the state trooper. So the same day that she signed the papers for this new job offer, she got pulled over again by the police in another traffic stop. Tell us about that. She was turning in her car outside of the campus onto a main road that goes through this town. And there was a a trooper behind her, a state trooper. And um, he apparently speeded up and she interpreted that as some kind of an emergency move that he was trying to go chase somebody ahead of her, she said. And so without signaling, she went into the right lane. She changed lanes. And then he stopped her because she had changed lanes. And I mean, in a way, like being from Texas myself and actually being from that part of Texas, I'm, I almost think she was sort of like the Emmett Till of this situation. She responded in a matter-of-fact way, not a friendly way to the, to the trooper, but certainly not an uncivil way by any means. And she didn't sort of do that, oh, officer, oh, I'm so sorry, which really is what you have to do there. And she had out-of-state plates. And I think that um, this officer just decided that she wasn't being deferential enough. And he started making demands on her. And they weren't even legal demands. You know, he said, would you mind putting out your cigarette? And she said, why do I have to do that? And she asked about 16 questions, which he never answered. And instead, the thing just went from zero to 100 in a confrontation that ended up with her being shoved to the ground, just really manhandled. I mean, it's it's so disturbing to see the autopsy and see the scratches on her back and, and the leaf, the little piece of leaf stuck into her back. It's clear that he pushed her down and really brutalized her. And then he arrested her for assaulting him. And that's how she ended up in the jail with a felony charge. And they put her in solitary. I, I don't understand why that happened. 
It happened because she had a felony assault charge on a public officer. And once that happens, there's a flow chart at the jail. And, um, you know, they put your name at the top and they just sort of run these little arrows from, you know, what did you do and where does that go in the flow chart to which cell you should be in. So she was classified as what's called medium assaultive. And it's a little tiny jail. So there actually were several women in a less secure room who, some of who were um, sitting down their traffic tickets <laughs> and they were playing cards and telling jokes and just trying to get through this. That's where she should have been. But she was put in this, in this other cell, which that weekend just didn't have any other assaultive people. So it wasn't like they said, we're putting you in solitary. They put her in a room that just that weekend was solitary. She was all by herself for two and a half days. Some of our friends, you know, think she didn't commit suicide, as the police reported. You've looked into this pretty carefully. What have you concluded? I have looked into this very, very carefully. It would have taken a conspiracy of several people in that jail, including the administration, to kill this woman and leave absolutely no evidence of violence. It is so beyond the pale of probability or possibility you know, and I have to say also that in order to even imagine this, you would have to imagine that the guards, half of whom, or maybe more than half of whom, were black and Latino themselves, were incredibly, incredibly brilliant, that they were brilliant, psychopathic conspirators. And I find it disturbing that that, that idea of racism, that, that that's what we should focus on when we think about racism, I mean... You know, racism is a series of institutions, and they affect millions of people, as we've looked at all these institutions that affected Sandy, the, the traffic stops, the marijuana bus, all of these things that affect so many millions of young black people. That's where we should be focusing, not on psychopathic conspiracy theories in a jail where there's no evidence. So what can we say about what happened to Sandra Bland? I think Sandra was killed, but not literally in that cell that day. I think that she died a thousand cuts in the same way that so many other people do, so many other black people do on a day-to-day -day basis. The, the insults that they suffer through racist institutions, that's what we learn from her death. And I think that the other thing that we learn is that you know, if we're thinking about black deaths, we have to think about something bigger, which is black lives. That when we say black lives matter, we're talking about black lives in their pain, in their imperfection, in their trouble. So we can say that black lives matter, and hers was one of them. Debbie Nathan's report on the life and death of Sandra Bland was the cover story in The Nation in April 2016. We spoke with her about it four years ago for this podcast. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.